0: No Direction's Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plagestone Pathfinder 2E actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Direction's own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at rollforcombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paso. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Barham. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at nodirectionpodcast.com. Well,
1: hello, Internet. Hello, everybody here at Gen Con. Welcome to Auntie Lisa's Story Hour, now two hours long because there's so much today to talk about. Um, I'm Lisa Stevens, CEO of Paizo, but I've done so many other things in my life. And this sto- this uh, seminar came about, oh God, a number of years ago, uh, about like 12 years ago. And uh, I'll give you the history of it. We, were, we do a little thing called PaizoCon over at, uh, in, in Seattle. It was a uh convention our the fans started Pisces fans started to just get together and hang out with each other and they invited us the first year and we enjoyed it so much we decided to take it over and run it ourselves um and the first year we ran it ourselves when monty cook was the guest of honor and monty and i had actually um we had worked together at wizards of the coast and uh and then known each other for a while too and so on the sunday of the convention as things were winding down the two of us were hanging out in the lobby of the hotel, just kind of chatting and telling stories to each other. remember that time that oh I remember that pre- oh it was so much fun. And as we were doing this, people were gathering around like a impromptu campfire and uh and and listening to these stories and and, and, and people started asking questions. And we were like, oh yeah, we'll talk about that. And before you know it, it was like three hours had gone by and we just told these stories and it was like that was so much fun. And people were like, you should do that next year too. And well Monty wasn't gonna be a guest but I was like, well I could do that next year. And so, this was born out of this kind of impromptu thing that happened on Sunday at PaisaCon. So, it's kind of developed a presentation with pictures and everything, too. Uh, so, it's all uh, grown up and stuff. I almost had a movie in here this year, but it didn't quite work out. Um, anyway, so, this is, it's become this thing, so as you get older in this industry, this is my 36th Gen Con in a row, um, there's a lot of things that happen. And, 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 and when you're in the industry, it's like we were ta- you know, we've lost a lot of our, you know, some of our luminaries, you know, Greg Stafford, and Gary Gygax, and Dave Arneson, and many, many more. And we realize these stories are going to get lost. These, these are the memories of what happened in the industry. We're all getting older, and we're forgetting them anyways. Uh, so we've, like a bunch of us, have taken on efforts to try to tell these stories, put them out there, get them on the Internet, get them someplace where they can't get lost. So that future people coming when they want to ask what happened, well, I got these stories. And if I have enough of these things, I end up telling all the stories because there's so many of them. I'm going to go through kind of my whole history, my life and stuff. At the end of it, we'll have time. You guys can ask questions about any part. I'll delve into it. And people have asked all kinds of crazy questions. It's been fun. Um, so we kind of make it kind of free form at the end. Um, but we might as well get going. All right. So how did I get started in this whole thing? And, and uh, so when I was young, I was, so I'm the eldest of three in my family, and uh, every summer I'd go to this camp called Camp Unaliah. And, and uh, uh, the first at first it was just a day camp. My parents would drop me off. i would go to camp. They'd take me, pick me up at night. But then the first year that I actually, like, went away for, like, five days, I got hugely homesick. It was like the first time I'd ever been gone from my parents and uh and so I was at this camp and I, I have some I was crying somewhere and some camp counselor noticed this guy noticed I was crying and he asked me he came over talked to me, and He asked me what I like to do and I, I was a big reader. I loved to read books. I was reading Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and all the kinds of different mysteries and things like that. Love that. And and he said, well, here. And he handed me this book, A.E. Van Vogt's Weapon Shops of Ishter. And uh, it's the first time i would ever read a science fiction book. And I dev- I probably read it like four times in the next you know couple of days. Just devoured it. Loved it. And then I got home and was like, Mom, I'm going to go buy it, get more of these books and stuff. And there wasn't many of those books in the stores at the time. though. And really, they were, You couldn't really find them in bookstores. But the library actually was great. They had all these books in the library. So I went to the library and checked out. In the course of like the summers, you know, the next couple summers, I checked out pretty much every book they had. And I, you know, they started, things started ending up in the bookstores and they started, you know, buying more and more of these books. And so uh, um, it, it just, like, this kind of thing got me down this whole path of, you know, science fiction then fantasy. They um, got to be, you know, quite a little science fiction fantasy reader. And then next slide. And then uh this computer game happened. <laughs> um I was in my my junior and senior years in high school and I was uh I was uh my, my dad loved to go you know to uh to look at uh audio equipment, like, you know you know, photographs and stuff like that, you know. And we went to the store, and they had just opened this new part thing uh, where they were selling computers. They were selling these old IBM System uh, uh, 386 machines, I believe. And uh, on the thing was this game called Alcalibeth. And Alcalibeth was the first game by Lord British. It was the thing that eventually became Ultima. And you can see it was kind of a very simple game. You kind of just you would run around this very nondescript top of this map and you'd find little dungeons and you'd go down and fight giant rats and other things zombies and skeletons and orcs and things like that and uh and get gold and food and stuff like that and so uh i st- played it at the store, and I, I got addicted to it, so I would literally go after school every night, I'd go to this, I'd drive over to this computer store, and they loved it, because I was selling computers, because people would watch me playing, having a good time, they go, go, what is that, can I buy it, and then, oh yeah, here's a computer system, and now you here selling them, so they were like, come back, kid, you know, so, so I, my, you know, my, that whole year before I got off to college, I was just, you know, I was playing uh, really regularly, and, and just becoming so addicted, and then I got like, so now I'm heading off to college and heading to Saint Olaf College, Northfield, Minnesota, and uh, we're from Carlton. <laughs> we got Carl's here. All right, <laughs> Oldies and Carl's. We kind of do this a lot. Uh, there's a lot of Carl's in my in my history here, so y'all, sh- I'll, sh- I'll show you one of the Carl's in my history. Uh, we're coming up in not too long. Um, anyway, so I, I, I was getting up to uh, to. Uh, you know, is school, and 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 I was like getting panicky. So I got up there, and I first thing I did is I put up a big thing on the bulletin board saying, "Anybody have Al I want to come play Al and stuff." I was hoping someone had it up there in in, in school, and I didn't. Uh, you know, no one answered and said they had Al but I did get one guy saying, "Hey, I'm getting a group together uh, on Saturday night. And we're playing a game called Dungeons and Dragons." you might like it, you know, if you like Alcalibeth, you might like that, and I was like, oh, I might like that, so went, and and uh, the first uh, time we ever uh, played, it was actually the White Box, um, and uh, I was just floored, it was again, one of those things that like for me it was like, oh, okay, this is what I want to do with life, uh, or at least for that year, <laughs> and um, and so, you know, and but, you know, they, they'd never played again, you know, so I, we played once, and the guy's like, ah, no, it's not for me. And I was like, oh, it's for me, and and stuff. And so uh, I was just like, you know, I read, <clears throat> started reading mythology, started reading, trying to find anything I could about you know fantasy. And then my, I told my mom, it's like, mom, I want, you know, I want Dungeons Dragons for Christmas. And so, ta-da, Christmas gift to remember, Dungeons Dragons basic set. Um, again, sort of devoured it. Made my sisters play with me at Christmas that year. Um, I got the Dungeon Master through. Keep on the borderlands and uh and you know so everything you know i was just quickly getting addicted oh and my mom was smart and she also got me grenadier miniatures hero set and a monster set of paints and so i was painting them over christmas i still got a lot of those really crappy paint jobs they're horrible <laughs> and um and so they get back to, 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 to school and after christmas and uh you know i'm uh I want to play. All right, let's play Dungeons and Dragons, right? And turns out, uh, I you know I I, I find you know I can put a thing up, you know. Hey, is anybody playing Dungeons and Dragons? Well, you know some guy call you know calls me up and says, well, we're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. We're playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And so you know like what's Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? I mean I'm just you know I figured it must be a more advanced version of the basic, game. well, it turns out they're kind of different games, and I didn't realize it until later, but, you know, I, so I have to go out and get myself an Avenged Dungeon Dragons player's handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide, and, and, uh, you know, Monster Manual and everything else, and so, um, so I get that, devour all that stuff, and, uh, I convince a couple people to be my first guinea pigs, and I start running a game, and over the course of, uh, the next year's uh, well, first year. Actually, there's a real fun thing. Uh which is the next. Here's my first character. I made my own character sheets, um, because I was that way. <laughs> and, and you can see we 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 had a lot of different. A lot of, unfortunately, you can't see some of that stuff, but there was like I, there was a thing in Dragon Magazine where there was like more stats and stuff. There was like all these different stats beyond the the, the basic ones and. Uh, so there's all kinds of crazy stuff. But yeah, I can see some of that stuff, handedness, and <laughs> anyways, it's kind of fun. So that was my first character a while, and there's yeah, we'll get to that story in a second. Um, so anyways, the uh, um. So we're we're starting to play, and uh, and I get quite a quite a bunch of people wanting to play in my game, right. And uh, it's, you know, it gets like, get, you know, go from two to four to six to eight. At one point, I had 20 people wanting to play in my game. And all at the same time. the one time, I think we got up to 16. And that was too many. It was that was a crazy game. It was like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. Um, and so um, the... Um, look ahead here a sec. All right. So actually, we'll tell you the story quick. Why don't you go, go ahead again? Yeah, all right. So this is skipping ahead to my first Gen Con, but um I uh so f- first Gen Con is, is UW Parkside. UW Parkside was like a little uh it's, it's not even the par- it's part of the University of Wisconsin uh college system, but it's like a really small one, like a almost like a community college. It was really small. Uh had like four buildings and stuff like that and uh but that was like pretty big. It was pretty big for Dungeons Dragons. They had we had like I think they had like five thousand people there that year, so it was a pretty good sized con. And uh, and uh, I was during the convention, there was a big push for this new thing called the RPGA, the Role Playing Gamers Association. They were really kind of trying to get people to join. And if you joined at the convention, they had these these artists. There was these guys they had just hired at TSR. Uh, there was Clyde Caldwell, Larry Elmore, Jeff Easley, and Keith Parkinson. They're all the, the four new guys, and they were they were sitting on this little table. And as you you know paid your dues, they you could you could, you could give them a a description of your your character, and they draw it for you. <laughs> and so here's my character Irwell. that was done by Clyde Clyde Caldwell, and I still have this on the wall in my office to this day. So, uh, and then the next one the next slide is kind of fun too, because like. My first dungeon, you can see. Well designed. <laughs> lots of twisty passages. Got secret uh, doors, and and uh, t- it was an old ta- old uh, abandoned uh, castle. And actually, the, when the uh, characters, this was right outside the Keep of the Borderlands. It was a lot that far away, maybe a couple miles from the Keep. And when they cleared it out, they had yeah, as their home base for the entire campaign that we ran. Uh, this is just one floor of it. There was many floors. It was one up, one up and lots of dungeon levels below. But uh I was kinda you know, I was using Gary's uh random dungeon tables in the back of uh, the DMG to, to, to make it. Um so next slide. Um so this is this is my buddy Dar. So we played in my uh in in, in uh our, our dorm room as where we mostly played until it got bigger, and then we had to go out down to the uh the student lounge and stuff like that. Uh Daro is uh one of the, the chefs at St. Olaf, actually. Uh it was a uh, interesting story with Dar. He uh, um, so one of my earliest guys in the game uh, kept going. You know, went into drug rehab, and uh, when he was in drug rehab, he he met Dar, the chef from Saint Olaf, and Dar had just gone. It was his like fourth or fifth time into drug rehab, and he had actually just the last time before he went to drug rehab, he actually tried to commit suicide, and uh, and as he was dying, he took a pill overdose, as he was dying. He, he Bumped the uh, hotel phone off the hook, and the operator, hello, hello, and hear him gasping and stuff, called 911, and they saved his life. Uh, so he got out of there, he he met my friend, and they, they my friend told him all about Dungeon Dragons, and so he uh, uh, got into my group, and he said it saved his life because he... I was in this cycle, coming back and having the same friends, and Friday night would come around, they'd go out drinking, and he'd try not to drink, but then he was one of these guys that loved to join in, so now on Friday night, he was rolling dice, and Saturday night, he was rolling dice with us, and so uh, it was, uh, you know, it was into getting married, had a child, uh, and of course, he's passed now, but uh, it was kind of fun to have him. He was was my uh, uh, dwarven... fighter and he was just he'd always get to make sure the action kept going. If people got too bogged down in role playing, he just he'd like open the next door <laughs> and then we'd go charging and they'd be like, oh crap, then he'd be yelling Cleric. So uh you know it was it was a it was a fun group and we had a really great role players and um and uh it was during this time that I was one of the things that happened is uh uh I got a couple new players from another group. And there was a group that was playing a RuneQuest game uh set in the world of harn and the dm of that was a guy named mark reinhagen and and, uh and he uh so he he calls me you know calls me up he's like you're stealing my players i'm like no no i'm not stealing your players and they they do they they came to my group right they want to play in my group he goes well i don't understand why they want to play in your group what's so great about your game i'm like i don't know we can come watch if you want so he came over to, to watch this play one night, and it was this weirdest game. We were playing in the, we were in the temple of Element, temple of elemental evil at the time, and we were uh, we had uh, a very chaotic th- uh, thief in the group, and she had kept like sneaking off and stealing stuff, and and, the, and there was a pal in the group that was sure that she was <clears throat> that she was uh, guilty, and he wanted to bring her to justice. And then there was a lawful good cleric that was like same god as his, and Hieronius, the god of Law and whatever paladins and Greyhawk, and uh, so in the middle of the, the temple of Elmel evil, they decided to put her on trial, and so you know without telling me, and so you know here we are in the little thing, and they 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 capture her and they put her on trial. And this is when the, and this my friends like you know he's, Mark's seen this mark scene that she's like. What the hell is going on? We didn't roll dice all night. We never rolled dice. There wasn't a monster to to fight or anything. We was just role playing. Once my you know my my characters and 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 it was just we went for hours, like five hours of just this trial and and it was very cool. Um, but it was uh, it, you know and so so Mark finally and I came to an agreement. You know I'd play in his game on Friday nights. He'd come play in my game on Saturday nights. And uh, and so uh, yeah. And so that's how we kind of got to know each other. And next slide, and so, at some point during the this this time uh, I also met Jonathan Tweet, who was also going to school there and Jonathan was you know he's a great game designer, and uh, he and Mark were working on this this game called Ars Magica, which just you know translates to art of magic uh and it's a uh it was an interesting idea. they were trying to like, give wizards their due, and uh it was a set in medieval Europe, but it was a medieval Europe as the peasants saw it with all the crazy myths and ghosts and goblins and everything else existing just outside the reach of, you know, civilization. And uh, they also came up with some really... I mean, it's a very innovative game. If you ask anybody at the time who was a game designer what the most innovative game, one that really inspired them, and they'd all point to this game. Yeah, it did pretty well. It's still being printed, and it's I think it's like a sixth edition now. Um, Atlas Games makes it, and... Uh, there's still a fanzine that's been going since the very beginning. It's like 1988 this came out. So uh it's it's uh it's still out there and still around and uh and it's it's got some very still very innovative stuff. It's still one of my favorite magic systems. Uh you have a you have basically a, a noun and a verb, so Creo ignum is create fire. Then you do Perdo Ignum, which is destroy fire, and then you can do Muto Ignum, which is to mutate or warp fire, and so you can actually you actually make up like spells on the spot and say I'm going to use this to try to do this, right? And so there's this, it's very creative and it's full of uh, great uh, ingenuity and stuff like that. So those guys came to me. So as as I was, I kind of mentioned earlier, I was doing RPGA stuff and. Uh, I got into the RPG started doing a lot of stuff at Gen Con. I, I'd go every year with a couple of my friends of ours, and we would just do you know, 8 in the morning to like midnight, doing nothing but RPG events, and there was some amazing stuff that happened. We got to go on the first ever like Temple of, Temple of Elemental Evil uh, when it first came out. I got to run with Frank Menster as the GM, and and, <clears throat> and you got to meet Gary and stuff like that. And um, and then Oriental Adventures came out and my friend actually committed seppuku during the uh and the event and it was some you know, well not reality, but his character did. You know, I understand what I'm talking about. And you know, so they but I was I was working at the RPGA and doing some things, wrote wrote an article actually uh and later, number twenty-five was my first published work and uh um so when they started working on this game, they, they said, hey, you, you, you know people in the game industry. We want you to work with us. And plus, I was a good editor. And they were kind of crappy at editing. So I became the editor. And it turned out I was also kind of like the third designer on the game. Because whenever you know we were discussing stuff, if Mark and Jonathan didn't agree, then they would pitch to me, and I'd get to decide. <laughs> and so I didn't get design credit on the cover, but I got a big special thanks on the second page. Um, why don't you turn to the next slide? So this is this is the early Lion Rampant, and then the guy in the middle with the big long hair, with the with the red red shorts on, that guy's uh, that's John nephew who now runs our Smogica. That's Atlas Games. He was the Carl, the Carlton. And then Jonathan tweets on the right there. Mark Reinhagen's on on top of the van. That's turns out it was he, this guy got posted to him. Mark Mark just posted this to his uh, Facebook page yesterday. We've been talking about it. Uh, it's his parents' van, I forgot that part, but um we they're moving me out of my uh, apartment. And uh it's Woody Eblom, the guy that's trying to put my beanbag chair in. <laughs> and Woody Woody was uh in the industry for a long time, uh no longer in the industry, but uh yeah, they were uh, we we're they're moving me out of my apartment into an apartment down in Northfield, uh where we actually ran uh our company out of for a long time. Uh for at least a couple year or so. Uh, a couple of years so um. Let's see. So then, you know, so here we are, this little company we're working. In, and why don't you turn next slide? So about this time, we met these guys that were doing this thing called Wet Wolf Magazine. Uh, uh, Stuart and Steve Wick were down in uh, Alabama at the time, and they were trying to make a s- serious gaming magazine that you know to Challenge Dragon magazine, and they, they wanted to cover the stuff that Dragon didn't cover which was pretty much anything the TSR didn't make <laughs> at the time and uh Stuart was really became a big fan of uh, uh our swag. and so uh, we would uh um we started writing articles for for White Wolf magazine and uh getting to be really good friends with them next slide so and actually here's a picture of uh Stuart on the front here and Mark's near the back this is down at Dragon Con 2 I think it was uh, down in down in Atlanta, it was a very it was like a very small convention in a, a hotel, you know, in a hotel uh, ballrooms basically at the time. So not what it is today, um, and uh, yeah, we just started like you know going to conventions, sharing convention tables with each other, hanging out at night, playing games with each other, um, and uh, so about that time, uh, Jonathan left. Because he decided this was not going anywhere, and he decided to go be a stockbroker <laughs> and uh so mark was the like the sole owner and uh, we didn't have a lot of money and uh some this guy his vester uh named uh dan fox uh just appeared one day <laughs> and he was from georgia and uh yeah, this you know, he had a, a fair bit of money and he wanted to like invest in a game company and he liked us and wanted us to to help him uh publish his game. Which oh geez, I can't even remember what they were called. It's like warriors, witches and something other. Oh, yeah, it was some like three thing, you know, and um it did get published someday a long time ago, but I I can't remember any of those the it names. It's not really that important, it never made a much of an impact. Except that he Spent this money and got us down to uh, got us to go down to uh, to Georgia. That was like one of the key things. We had to move the company to Georgia, and since none of us were really that attached to where we were, I had a job, but it wasn't a job I was trying to be a career with or anything. And I wanted to make a career with this, and he was going to we're going to actually start getting paid and stuff. This would be awesome, man! And because yeah, before this we weren't getting paid, I was just you know doing this in our spare time. Oh, and at the time I was we were literally living. I was sleeping in like on a futon in like you know, in a spare room at this house they were renting, and so it was, you know it was the house rampant we called it. I don't have any pictures of house rampant. I wish I did, but and there were some good parties there too. Um, but we it was like a little bit of a commune. We just would we'd just literally like wake up and and I'd go to work, come home, we work on gaming stuff. I'd go to bed. You would go to work, come home, work on gaming stuff. Weekends is all gaming stuff. Um, and uh, so anyway, we moved to Georgia, and uh, and we he starts spending money. And we get you know like, we get like more computers, a printer. We get uh, and we start sending products to the press, into the to printer. And he rents this beautiful brand new house for our, I bought a new house, and in a lot of space to use it down in Georgia. And so it was the biggest house we'd been in, and uh, everything was going great. Uh, we go to GenCon. And uh, so, on the way to GenCon, uh, the um, I, well, so we were we were thinking about what to do next, right? Because like, we're we're excited. We have all this money now. We can do some stuff. And so it was, it was the White Wolf guys from, from White Wolf Magazine, and and then the Lion Rampant folks. We were all basically in, in a car driving from Georgia up to Milwaukee at the time, and. Uh, Mark had this thing in his head that you know, he, he, the thing he was excited about that time was Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, and uh, and he's like, we should do an Interview with the Vampire. We should get a license for that and do an Interview with the Vampire, a role-playing game. And, um, and you know, so, uh, you know, we, we all thought that was interesting and stuff, but they were like, we really want to just, like, you know, as we talked about it, like, that, that's just hamstrings. Why don't we just get inspired by Interview with the Vampire? And everything. And and so, that was you know, that's, that sounded pretty cool. Mark also had another game at the time called oh what was it called? It was Purgatory. He was working on, <clears throat> and uh, it's an interest. It's an interesting story about Purgatory. So Purgatory was a game that I was pretty excited about because it was it was the concept was that you died and you're uh, you're stuck in Purgatory, and in order to get out of Purgatory. He had to go on these adventures for for the, for the angel gabriel and uh fight these forces that are trying to do evil and stuff like that and lure souls to the you know to hell and uh so i, I the thing i was excited about is i thought you could you, you could base your character off of characters that have died in role-playing games so you could have if you had a favorite character and be like okay this would be kind of fun you know you can i could you can and you could have people from all you know all different parts of life so you could have a Someone who's a baseball player, and there's someone who's a knight, and someone who's you know, so it could be from different times and stuff. So it could be really interesting. And so we actually had the first uh, time we 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 play tested Purgatory. Um, so you know, so we're sitting there in in, in this house in in Suwanee, Georgia, and and Mark had made it very moody, like he had he had he had like you know. But the candle's low and and everything and, and and the lights low and everything and and he was describing we were like our group we had, we'd introduced ourselves and we were kind of working through this fogginess, and he was going to have us meet the grim reaper right and, and it was just part of this role play thing and he's like, you know he's describing going through the fog and this and this figure comes out of the fog, he's big with a sickle, and he and he stands up and he towers over you, and he says, and just as he like gets this huge crescendo, all the lights go bursting into in into light, and the whole place goes dark, and we're all like, "Whoa <laughs> holy shit well i mean I'm, I'm is beating and we look, and at Marcus just like, "What the hell just happened right And he he had no idea right and and, and 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 then he goes running to the front. Uh, door because he had like heard some commotion, and, and it turns out the guy next door a neighbor had ordered pizza. and We lived on the alley's houses were on a hill, and some pizza delivery driver had gotten out of his car to deliver pizza and not put it in park. So his car had gone down the hill and ran into the transformer for the whole neighborhood, right? And basically knocked out all the lights. And so we're all looking at the front door, you know, kind of looking at what's happening down there, and we noticed from our angle, we could see that his gas tank has been ruptured. And it's dripping gas on this, these spark and sparks are going off where this transformer is. And there's these kids that are on bikes coming towards, you know, running, coming, you know, driving towards us. This looks cool, you know, this is an accident, right? And so Mark's out there going, get away, it's gonna explode, it's gonna explode. And sure enough, it explodes. Right on our front, you know, lawn. It explodes, burns down. For the longest time, Mark had this piece of glass that had his all was left of this car after it burned down. And uh so we, all, yeah, that went, we never never got back to playing that night <laughs> because too much excitement. Um, and then Gen Con hit us. And so, right then we, so we talked about the vampire game. And while we were gone, a couple things happened. Uh, first of all, Mark's manuscript for purgatory was sitting down in the basement of his house, and a pipe burst right above it, and water front, right from the pipe, right on top of the manuscript, destroying it. And Mark and I and everyone else looked at each other and said, Maybe this Purgatory game is not a very good game to be doing after all. Someone's trying to tell us exploding cars in the front lawn, broken pipes. I think this vampire game sounds like a lot better idea. So we Purgatory went to Purgatory and it's never bluffed. Um, and then uh, the second thing that happened is we got evicted from our house. And so when that happened, you need to go back one slide. That one, yes. Um, so. Uh, when that happened uh um mark was just like I'm done this we're going to close the company down we I'm done this is going to moved back to Minnesota and we were but things were starting to take off yeah we we got some print bills cuz we kind of committed to doing these print jobs while we thought this guy had all this money and it turns out he'd gotten an inheritance and spent it all on us and then didn't have any more money to follow up with it little do we know and and so and, you know, as I've said, we had this relationship with the White Wolf guys, and uh, uh, Stuart Wick was uh, one thing he was is very, very good at managing money. So he had a great credit line, and so I figured, well, here's what we'll do. I came up with this crazy, crazy idea. It's like, look, we'll basically merge, you know, merge ourselves over to White Wolf Magazine, call ourselves White Wolf. Um, and then uh, Lion Rampant will still continue, and it'll pay, it'll pay off its print bills eventually by selling our old stock of books that we'd already had printed, and we'll make everything new under White Wolf, with using their printer credit, and then uh, switch eventually switch, c- close down Lion Rampant and switch over fully to, to White Wolf. And so I ended up pitching that to Stuart, and for some reason he listened, <laughs> and we did it, and we formed... Uh, white wolf and uh since we needed a new house, we got this house mm-hmm. in uh, in stone mountain georgia and uh that's my desk there uh it's my dog on the picture there too it's isa um uh, and uh that's where I worked for a long time in 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 <laughs> i guess that's the family room, the living room I don't know not that we had anything in there but really gaming stuff uh the the garage there that's my car in the driveway the garage was uh like like where we stored our books it was our warehouse um and uh so yeah we so we 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 live there and we start working on vampire and uh next next slide please so we're working on vampire uh the masquerade and uh we can tell right away it's just going to be a different game for us. It's really it, it took a lot from our Smogica. Uh, it was a lot of the ideas of storytelling and stuff from came from there. And uh, but one of the things I noticed right away is women. We had we actually had an entire female game group. Which I'd never, I'd always had a lot of women in my game. It was about 50 50 uh, when I was DMing uh, Dungeons and Dragons. But we actually had like 100% women game group. And it was, that was, that was so cool. And, and one of the things that came pretty clear is that women play differently than men. And, you know, I never really grokked it until I had all women playing because they just focus on different things. And it was i actually, Mark, I remember Mark spent a lot of time watching us play just to see how did, what you know? What what you know? The guys they were all going blowing things up and and things, and women were all socializing, trying to you know set up these relationships, and dudes using diplomacy and you know stuff like that. It was so fun. So anyways, we 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 come out with you know with vampire, and uh, there's a cool story about this cover. I wish I should have I should have included the original cover. So originally we were gonna just do a cover like any other cover. It was actually a piece of artwork by a guy named Dan Frazier. It had a picture. It was a scene inside a city. There was a crashed police car, I think, and and then there was a uh, a a vampire bending over the <laughs> the dead cop, sucking his blood or something like that, right? And it was just like you know it's every cliche horrible cliche for vampires, and we were just like. We're looking at it and going. This game just doesn't feel like your regular role-playing game with this painted cover. And Mark just got this crazy idea of let's just go get a piece of marble, buy a rose, throw an onk on it, and get it and take it and get a photograph taken of it, and that's what we did. And we literally did it like the last minute before we sent it to the printer. And that thing became hugely iconic in terms of, uh, um, you know, I mean. Obviously, gaming, and it, I think it brought more women into gaming than anything. And uh, really, and for a while there, it was challenging D and D as the number one uh, role playing game in the early '90s. Um, so at this time, you know, when you're when you're a bunch of uh, kids living in uh, you know the same house, twenty four hours, seven days a week, you can get on each other's nerves a little bit. And uh, there, at this time, there was about. I think there was probably five or six of us living in that house. And uh I ended up uh getting in a little bit of a fight with uh one of the other women living there, Nicole Linders, who now was with Green Ronin. Um, and I can't even tell you what it was about, to tell you the truth. I think it happened at Origins that year. Um, but I think it was just kind of like, there was a lot of things that kind of... um Led led one thing to another, and uh, anyway,s so the uh, so they they asked me uh, to, to ask Nicole and I to leave the company, which was pretty devastating, and it would have been horribly devastating, and probably meant an entire change in my career. But a few months earlier, before that, I had been at this trade show, and when I was at the trade show, I uh, met I just randomly sat down next to this young man who is. Uh, at this at at this lunch that was provided to us, and asked him where he's from. He was from Seattle, Washington, and he and his friends were starting a game company up there called Wizards of the Coast. And uh, and you know, he asked me if he could like if I you know he basically started telling me what their plans were, and I basically told him your plans are horrible. you're gonna go to business and. He didn't take that all in the wrong way at all. He said, Okay, well, could you help me us, us with our plans? And I you know, when you get when you're in this industry, you tend to help each other out a lot. It was kind of a very collegial, it still is very collegial. And uh so I said, sure, I I'd be happy to help you guys out. So in the months before, you know, vampire and stuff like that, I was uh, you know, spending some time on on the very rudimentary early internet uh Doing this very arcane jumping from college to college through the internet and then dialing into a bulletin board system in seattle and and chatting with uh, uh a guy who had started who was who was the guy I met a guy named Peter Ackerson now one's gencon <laughs> and uh um and he was uh, working at boeing at the time and we we would spend hours just chatting uh via the uh the internet that way and he would just ask questions and I would give him answers and and stuff, and so I, to thank me for helping them, they'd actually, I hadn't, hadn't had a vacation ever, so they said, why don't you come up to Seattle and have a vacation, so I thought, you know, it will be great, you know, and they'd say, we'll put you up, we'll take you out to dinner, and you know, because I was pretty poor at the time, I was making $100 a week, um, of course, I had this house, I, I remember, I didn't have to pay rent, so it was kind of cool, or phone, or anything else, I'd pay for gas for my car, and some food for my belly, and so, Um, I'm very good at popcorn, um, and, um, and just uh, little like little mini pizzas. Anyways, um, so just when this whole thing happens, where White Wolf asked me to like me and uh, Nicole and I to leave, just happened to be days before I was supposed to go to Seattle, and so I called Peter up and like, oh shit, you know this. It's just happened, I'm gonna to have to go find a job and stuff like that. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm probably gonna cancel my trip. He goes, No, 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 don't don't cancel your trip. Come out. You already paid for it, right? Just come out here, we'll take we'll take care of you. And he had in his mind I think he had this brilliant idea, which was to try to woo me to come in to uh to uh Wizards of the Coast. Why don't you go to the next slide? So uh I move I, I fly up to Seattle and uh and you know, have a great time. They take me all over Seattle, show me a good time We get to meet all There was a ton of people that were kind of like early investors and stuff in Wizards of the ghost uh, people who were interested in what they were working on and uh I'll never forget there was a we had this moment where one night where Peter and I went out to the golf course that was back in back of his uh apartment. And we sat on the banks of the Green River there on the golf course. And we just started talking about our dreams for the future and what we wanted to do. And, and I remember Peter telling me, uh, uh, I have my, my dream is to make millionaires of my friends. And I was like, well, I'd like to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and and he convinced me to come up and and, and move up to Seattle and, and help him start Wiz the Coast. And so I was the first paid employee I guess we were talking about this yesterday. I think I'm the first full-time paid employee. There was a part-time paid employee before me, but I was the first full-time paid employee. And uh, um, so I go out, you know, we, we, you know, a couple, uh, couple, like a month later or so, uh, he basically flies down to Georgia. We pack everything up in a truck and drive all the way back across the United States with my stuff to Seattle and, uh Start this little game company, Wizards is the coast, and <clears throat> this is my office there. And uh, you can see the the Clyde Caldwell artwork in the backwards on the background there. You can see it on the wall right in the back of my desk. Um, and uh, this is where all the magic happened. <laughs> and by that I mean magic. Uh, next slide. Actually, let we'll talk a little bit before magic. So. Uh, yeah, so before you know, actually, well, so Magic the Gathering comes in pretty quickly in this whole story because um, even before I got up to Seattle, uh, Peter had met this this inventor, uh, Richard Garfield, and uh, at a local uh, game convention in Seattle, and Richard had a game called Robo Rally that he wanted to uh, have us print for him, and. I just, I knew we didn't have the money for it or the expertise to make a board game. And so I told Peter, and no, I'm we can't make a board game now. And so Peter went back and said, well, is there anything else you got? And Peter had this idea, like, I mean, I if we had like a small little portable game, maybe cards or something that you can maybe like carry with you. And then while you're waiting in line at a convention or having dinner, you maybe could play this card game. And Richard said, well, I, he's thought about it. And he's like, I got this game called The Five Magics. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, and and so uh, Peter thought, okay, well, why don't you show us what that is? So I get up to Seattle, and I'm there about a week, and the Five Magic shows up in in, in the mail, and it's basically the early, you'll see some pictures coming up later of uh, like this basically these playtest cards that became Magic the Gathering, but in the meantime, we needed to have a business going and stuff, and so we I knew role playing games, and so. Um, uh, one of the good things that Peter had in his plan, I told you it was garbage. Well, it wasn't all garbage. There was a couple of interesting ideas, and he had this idea called Capstone Systems. And Capstone Systems was an interesting idea. It was a way to basically make a book that had really went into detail on some aspect of role-playing games, and you could play it with any other role-playing game, and it would have rules in the back of how you can adapt the the... Envoy system was what it was called into your favorite game system and so the first one we did was one called Primal Order and uh, Primal Order was uh, all about gods, it was a really in-depth thing about gods and their followers and everything else and how to deific realms and just everything you could think of and uh, it turns out Peter's Dungeons and Dragons game had evolved into this super powerful world where most of the players become gods and stuff like that and so we released Primal Order. At the same time, I I one of my friends, Stephen Michael Secchi, had uh had this game called Talislanta. Uh, if you remember the old No Elves ads in the back of Dragon. And he got in some hard times and uh couldn't produce it himself. So he basically we worked at a deal where we would start making uh, uh And and actually the first Talislanta book we did, did was a. Uh, co-designed between him and Jonathan Tweet, who I worked with way back when. And so, you know, he, he decided to get back into the game industry. And so he he did the design with Steve and Michael Secchi and we released Talislanta. So this is, this is the first Gen Con booth for Wizards of the Coast. Uh, that's me on the left there at the time. And uh, on and then the right there. And I, I always like to point out that the... Uh, we actually shared the booth with a little internet company called America Online. They were just getting started. Um, they really were. They were just getting... That was pretty much their entire staff of like four were there. And uh, they were handing out little diskettes, you know, to, to people, uh, little disks, the operating system. So yeah, Wiz of the Coast, America Online, that little booth. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, we so that was our first Gen Con. We were selling Talos I was selling Primal Order. Uh... And uh working on Magic the Gathering at the same time. So next slide. Oh, there's Primal Order. <laughs> Talislana Primal Order. Yes, there I just talked about them. Um yeah, that was this that's the Talisana rule book and then Primal Order. Uh it had a second cover later on. That's the first cover. Um and next. Alright, so here's those those playtest cards we get in the mail from uh Richard Garfield. And you can see it's just You know, it's just something he hand cut out and had little pictures he had photocopied from uh, whatever, you know. uh, um, Anything he could think of that would, uh, like a picture of a watch and stuff like that for Time Twister. And we started playing this and it was pretty obvious to me that this was going to be huge. I remember at one point I told Peter Axon I thought this could make a million dollars. And everybody laughed at me and said, you're being silly, Lisa. Because I think we were making about, uh, maybe about like ten to $20,000 a year in revenue. So, you know, a million dollars was like way bigger. And uh, so Magic the Gathering, obviously kind of was the revolutionary idea, but it was also like so revolutionary. It was almost, we didn't know how the hell to get this done. So you have a set of 300 and what, 300 and, and guards, I think it was, um, and 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 so so three hundred. Some of them were dupes. They lands and stuff on there, but um, so we had to figure out like things like how you get artwork for all these cards. I mean, so like a cover painting at the time from a good artist was probably a thousand, fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand dollars to get a cover painting, and we needed like three hundred some pieces of color art. And we're a little broke game company with twenty thousand dollars in sales. And um in the uh on top of it, it's like it was a trading card game. It was a game with playable cards that were in random packs. It had to be playable and random. And you know, and, and I was in charge of doing all the print buying, and I, I was calling up like card companies, and if they made like playing cards, they were like they, they didn't know how to randomize anything, or they made decks of cards that were all the same, right, and the people who were in randomization were like the guys making football cards and baseball cards and you know all those training cards and uh but they didn't, they used they didn't have stock this the the playing card stock right they didn't have machines that could do that, so we didn't really have any idea how we going to get this thing made and the, thankfully uh my old friends at White Wolf came to the rescue and they uh, ran into a guy from Belgium and Luke Mertens, who I'm having dinner with tonight actually. And uh Luke uh was looking for new business and he had he had asked the White Wolf guys if they had any projects and they didn't but they knew we had this project and so Luke met with us and uh he said, Yeah, we could do that. We can make that game and so they he actually came to the rescue and well, it turns out he came to the rescue for us and we came to the rescue for them because we first matched the guy and went bonkers and they were the printers of it. And so they made a lot of money that way. Um, and uh so, you know, we're working on that. We figured out some crazy deals with artists to like, I think they got like a $100 of cash, a $100 worth of stock in the company and a royalty percentage. I think it was a 10% of all the money made on Magic the Gathering was split up amongst the artists or something like that, right? And so let's just say those guys did pretty well. (laughs) I know some of the guys that did a lot of cards became millionaires, and so, um, you know, it was... uh, it was, but at the time, you know, it's like we were we were laughing. It's like a hundred bucks, and you know, and that's it, and that's it, you know, and free refills at Denny's, you know. I mean, it wasn't really much of much of an offer, in life. and and some people turned me down, but I had a lot of connections, right, with artists, and and, and we also had this new guy that came and joined and joined the company named Yes Premiere Force. He was a local art student and uh... seattle has this really great art college and uh... he got a lot of his fellow art students to come and do do this stuff and some of those guys became super famous Mark the and some addicts and those guys and uh... so we, we we it was a combination of people i knew from the the game industry and then some people from the art college and then we managed to get all the art pieces done we had to do a lot of uh... we actually also started garfield games because at the same time all this is going down we're getting ready to make Magic the gathering uh remember that Pram Order thing, remember how I said you could you could had rules for like you know, other other game systems, you know, to help you well, we got sued by Palladium. Uh Kevin Symbieta sued us for our notes in there for the palladium system. And uh he uh um he asserted we didn't have the rights to do that. Our lawyer said we did other rights, but you know, Lawsuits are expensive. And remember, we made like twenty thousand dollars. I think we made thirty five thousand that year, but you know, it was it wasn't much. And, you know, we had to go to court and stuff like that. So basically we laid ourselves off about eight months before Magic the Gathering comes out. I'm out of a job. Uh everybody's out of a job. We're not we couldn't pay any payroll. Um, but we all believed in magic so much. We figured out ways to make things meet and stuff. My, my, uh, my boyfriend at the time, you know, got a job at Nintendo, and uh, he's, he's my husband now. But um, and he uh, he did that, and I wrote, did a lot of freelance stuff, wrote some articles for Dragon magazine because I knew the people there, and and you know, did some editing and uh, for for TSR and some other things to, to make some ends meet and stuff while we worked on Magic at the same time it sounds like the beginning of my career where I was working a job and then working on the company kind of the same way. And uh so during the process of of making magic one other fun thing happens. Want to, to the next one? The story of Joe the Ant. So Joe the Ant, you have to go back a little bit to in my career when I was uh working on Lion Rampant. We were I was working at the University of Minnesota and uh uh, I was running the computers for the department of surgery and also editing uh any 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 uh scientific articles that they were uh put publishing and uh one day I'm, you know I'm I'm at work and this guy that works with me comes in he's got this beautiful new tennis racket just gorgeous expensive tennis racket and I'm like oh dude I didn't know you playing and obviously he must be pretty good he has expensive expensive tennis racket and he goes, nah, I never played in my life. I said, well, how do you have a five hundred dollar tennis racket? And he's like, this guy is giving his possessions out on the on, on the uh, the school, uh, on this, you know, over near the commons, the school of commons. You know, you should, you should go out there and maybe you can get something. And so I go there and there's this big line of kids waiting, and and there's this guy sitting on the ground. He's obviously he's in you know shaved head, and he's wearing these like you know, orange robes, and and he had he had decided to you know. To give his life to God and and uh, and he'd call himself Joe the Ant, an ant for God, lift mountains, right? You're an ant for God, and so God had told him that he needed to get rid of all his possessions, earthly possessions. So they were all laid out in this right in front of the school commons, on the on and 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 you you'd stand in line and you'd go up to Joe the Ant and God would tell him what you got of his possessions. My friend, God told, I guess. My friend to get a start learning to play tennis, I guess. So I get up there to the front, and Joe looks at me. He thinks about it. God tells him. He hands this me this painting, and I I, I should get a picture of the painting here because it's pretty. It's 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 this like sea thing where there's like it's lots of blues and blacks and stuff, and there's a, a big craggy uh, uh, rock coming out of the, the the ocean with surf crashing in and stuff. And and Joe says. I painted this when I was in the insane asylum. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice, thanks, Joe. So I, you know, I, wrote in the back, Joe the Ant, wrote the day down, you know, and took it home with me, and never didn't think much about it. And we're making Magic the Gathering, and Esper's working on the card backs, right? And he's like, he's like, I need some texture to go in this little. You can see this that, uh, and there's a little circular ring that goes around the the brown there. And, and he's like, I need some texture. And I said, well, I got this Joe the Ant painting. And he said, perfect. And so he scans the Joe the Ant painting and uses that for the texture. So I always say that Joe the Ant's got more magic cards than anybody, because <laughs> his, his painting is kind of on every single magic card ever made in, in history, because that's using that same back still to this day. So I never changed it. So It still says Deckmaster TM, which is hilarious. We never used that afterwards, uh, but they can't change it because the cards, cards have to all have that same back. So, so Joe the Ant, you know, the little, you know, maybe God knew at the time, and somehow his painting would somehow become on the most, you know, famous card game ever. All right, so moving on. So Magic the Gathering takes off, right? It's, uh, it's going nuts, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're getting paid again, which is nice. <laughs> um, and it <clears throat> Wizard of the Coast at the time was about five people, five or six people, and we quickly blossom up to about three hundred and fifty. And it was literally higher of the nearest warm body and just anybody, right? And who 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 could who who could you know, and so like at the time it was really funny, at a time I was uh the, the 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 Camarilla, which is a kind like vampire masquerade live, you know, LARPing group or whatever. There was like kind of this group that started in Seattle, and they had they had invited me to come do some LARPing because they knew I was involved with, ma- with vampire, and so almost all the guys on that were involved with the uh, with with the Camarilla all end up being hired at Wizards of the Coast you knew somebody like my you know my husband gets hired and everybody i mean if you know you just just like literally if you knew somebody and so i was at the time magic launched i was doing sales marketing art direction uh editing uh not not doing editing as much anymore beverly was doing most of that but i was like doing shipping and receiving and and pretty much any odd job that needed to be done because which was a few of us and uh and so all of a sudden, we're a big company with, you know, any one of those jobs was, was a full-time job and a half, and you probably needed a part, whole department of people to do sales, and a whole department to do marketing. And so I had to quickly divest myself of almost everything I was doing, and I ended up doing mostly new business at that point, like uh, doing licenses. We had this, so I had this crazy idea, so, you know, I I we were all very fearful that magic the gathering would get usurped right by somebody bigger we're still a small company even though we we're things were taken off we we're really worried that some of the big companies would would come and make a game and everybody would go there instead because uh, we would do this innovative thing so i had gone and actually made all these licensing deals with everybody to do all the basically, you know i did one for uh you know, like, uh, Lord of the Rings with, uh, Iron Crown, I did one for Cyberpunk, Artel Sorian. I did one for Vampire with White Wolf, I did one for Battletech with Fossa, you know, it's just basically, you know, wrapped up all these IPs so they couldn't make these games and compete with me. The one I couldn't get was Dungeons and Dragons, and I was trying to get that. And I was also trying to get Star Wars and Star Trek. And, uh, um, Star Trek was already gone but Star Wars was available and so I'm I'm I I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to get the Star Wars license so um I'm getting kind of the runaround from Lucasfilm about trying to get the Star Wars license and uh they you know so they they basically tell me they they're going to do this deal with the same guys that had the Star Trek license uh you know the people that became DeCipher and uh the uh I had just been down. So people from Hollywood are starting to circle around because of magic success. I had just been down in Hollywood and spent the day with a guy named Robert Watson, who was, Robert Watts was the uh, uh, producer of a lot of the Star Wars movies. Um, I think he was on Empire and Return of the Jedi. And we really hit it off. He loved what we were doing and stuff. And so he calls me up and is like, so, did you get the Star Wars license? And I said, ah, Lucasfilm doesn't want to do the license. They want to do the licenses to other guys. <coughs> and um, he's like, well, that, that just won't do. Sit by your phone. I'm going to call George. I mean, George Lucas? Yeah, I'm going to call George. So he hangs up, sit by my phone. And about five minutes later, I get a phone call from Lucasfilm. So, uh, I hear you want to do the Star Wars license. <laughs> I find out later on that, um, no, like that's right. this is, and I don't want to jump at this, it's a different story, so, um, so I'm, uh, you know, so we start negotiating Star Wars license, but it's actually complicated, because it's 1995, and they're going to be doing these special editions in 97, and they actually, and then they knew, they knew that episode one was coming out in 99, and so, they wanted to have all the licenses end in 97, so they could do new licenses in or, you know, 99, or maybe they ended in 98, they wanted new licenses for 99, but they wanted us to put like a million dollar advance down, stuff like that, and it's like, that's a lot, it's going to take us time to, to make this game. We figured we couldn't have a game out until probably 1997, and, and then there's really no time to like sell it and make your money back, and so we were negotiating, trying to get them to like give us a longer license, and uh, Decipher went to Hasbro. The company that uh you know uh was, was was doing all the Star Wars toys and basically convinced those them to uh do the toy distribution for, for their game. And so Hasbro called up Lucasfilm and said, Hey, don't futz around this other company you gotta do this game with the cipher and all of a sudden Decipher uh gets the gets the deal and I'm out. So you know, I've did some of this licensing. God, there's everybody wanted to make a uh, movie on magic and it was like it was crazy and I was like going you know, down there, getting picked up in a limo, take you know, going from one big Hollywood big wig to another. And they were like telling me all these stories about what they're gonna do and meeting with Michael Eisner and the Disney and they actually had a whole floor of a building with 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 all this they would set up a room with what merch would look like and they had storyboards and everything it was crazy. Um but nothing ever got done. So while this is happening, Magic's taken off, and we decided that one of the big things we needed to do was was, was organized, kind of an organized play thing, a Magic Pro Tour. And so, I leave doing the new business development. And I start, you know, and I, I I go and launch the Pro Tour, and uh, uh, it was really fun. We trying to figure out Magic as a sport was an interesting thing that hadn't been done before. And I mean, we ended up getting we ended up getting Magic tournaments on uh ESPN and stuff like that. It was crazy. Um and uh but you know, that was uh um yeah, it it became this huge part of what what magic was. And then we decided from there, next slide. Um, I think they fell asleep back there. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um and then from there we decided to to like start opening these these game centers. And this is the one we did in uh um, Seattle, <laughs> with a huge hurling Minotaur sculpture and a big dragon when you walked in, and it was really, really super fancy and cool. And the game store to the right. When you went downstairs, it had uh, like a huge tournament area, and then if you went to the left, there was a bunch of uh, arcade games and stuff like that. Like you know, and we had BattleTech pods, and and then even further than that was a whole cafe. Uh, uh called Dalmoody's. You could go get food and stuff. It was this really huge thing, and it was pretty cool. And I got the... I was basically one of the people that came up with it and launched it and designed it and everything. And uh, we ended up buying, like, a bunch of game stores. And we had game stores in most of the malls back then. We had 500 game stores at one point. Um, and uh, that was, you know... So that was... I was in the middle of doing that. I was actually... And so I was doing that, and I was doing the pro tour. And I was at a... Co tour stop in uh New York and on a Friday, I'll never forget, on a Friday I get a phone call from Peter Atkinson, CEO. And he's like, Lisa, tomorrow morning you get a plane flight to Milwaukee. Plane flight to Milwaukee? Guess, yeah, we're buying TSR. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so next slide. So a little trip to Lake Geneva. So um uh why don't you turn to the next one too? Anyway, so there's, that's what the building outside the building, one part of it, at uh, in Lake Geneva was. So I didn't realize at the time that Peter was had been negotiating behind the scenes to to purchase uh, TSR. A uh, little background on this: so TSR had kind of gotten themselves in a bunch of trouble with. Uh, I mean, they didn't I'll tell you the truth, They didn't have very good controls on their finances. I, I got, I got. I had to, once we acquired them, my, my job was to go figure out what went wrong, and so I actually delved into a whole bunch of, like, reports and spreadsheets and and stuff, and they and they did a couple of things wrong, and uh, one of the big ones was they uh, split their customer base up into campaign settings. Instead of, people didn't identify themselves as being D&D players, they were Forgotten Realms players, and Greyhawk players, and Dark Sim players, and Ravenloft players, and Planescape players and whatever, you know, they they had divided their their group, their people up into all these different you know, buckets and each bucket got smaller and smaller because people Planescape players wouldn't buy stuff for Ravenloft and Ravenloft players wouldn't buy for its Greyhawk and whatever. And so you'd put product out and it would sell smaller and smaller amounts instead of bigger and bigger amounts. And at the same time they they uh they had they had basically had some trouble paying some print bills, so they had to they ended up uh selling parts of their company to uh their printer who started owning more and more and he actually ended up buying the building. They used to own the building they were in. And then also he became the landlord and and at the same time they were doing they they were making train they had a deal with Random House to do their book distribution and they would uh in order to, Random House had this deal with them that basically you just sent them books and Random House would pay for them. But they were fully returnable whenever they wanted to, right? But in practice, they would mostly sell all the time, so they never really got, had to pay them back. And so they would just, whenever they need money, they would just send books to Random House. Well, someone at Random House, there was a new guy, a new young VP, and he started looking at the books, like, why do we have all these TSR things and they're returnable, right? Send them back. Well, he did. I guess they didn't have the money to pay them. Back, and so all that kind of happened at the same time, and so the it looked like you know they were going to go under. They laid a bunch of staff off. They hadn't paid people for a while, and the printer was going to be the guy that ended up owning the company, or random house, one of the two. They might have fought it out in court, and Lorraine Williams, who was the you know uh, owner and, and president at the time of TSR had a friend who and I can't remember his name, but he was an owner in what we called Five Rings Publishing Group at the time and that was doing the Legend of the Five Rings trading card game and a few other things. And uh they so she like starts talking to them about I need you guys to come buy us, but they didn't have enough money. They were just, you know, they were a pretty small company. And they said, well, "What if we brokered a deal with somebody to come buy you?" And, and so they went to Wizards of the Coast and said, "Hey, I would you like to buy TSR." And they brokered the deal between Lorraine and and and, and Wizards. And uh, as part of it, they got bought by Wizards too. And that's why we ended up having Legend of the Five Rings for a while as a Wizards of the Coast product. Um, and so uh, um, I fly to Milwaukee on the next day, and Peter picks me up, and it was the weirdest feeling in the world of, of, of walking in the front doors of TSR knowing that we had just bought TSR and this was all ours now. And it was just, it was weird, but it was, it was also kind of strange because, I mean, everybody there was so scared and so subdued. And so it was like, it must have been what conquerors must have felt like going in, you know, and aren't with our armies into a conquered city because, you know, there was just, you know, and so, my job I so I ended up staying there the whole summer. Um and my job was basically to assure everybody we're not going to just make, you know, destroy D&D, make it into a card game and whatever that. And we actually liked the role playing and that people didn't know this at the time, but our company Wizards of the coast was named after a group of wizards in T, uh Peter's D&D game campaign. So um and so you know, so it was this cool, you know, summer of me sort of, you know, hanging out with you know all the, the TSR creative people and and getting to know the the company and then they put Peter put me in charge of RPGA and Greyhawk and then I was also supposed tasked with making a Magic the Gathering role playing game which was one of the most ill fated role playing game ideas ever. We never actually made it um, all those years. I think they now put out something now finally for D and D a campaign world, but we're actually going to do a role playing game and just never quite made it. We had like three different in- incarnations of that through the years. Um, and so anyways, that all happens. And uh, why don't you turn to the next slide. This is actually one of my, I love this slide. Um, so I'm in charge of Greyhawk. And this is at Gen Con in Milwaukee and, uh And we have a little fan event where uh, for Greyhawk that we put together. And... Uh, uh, yeah, Mr. Gary Gygax, to Dave Arneson, side by side talking about Greyhawk and about the early days of D&D. That's Frank Menser on the far left over there. Ann Brown, who had, was the editor and charge of Greyhawk at TSR. And the guy in the middle is Randy Richards, who was uh, uh, and he had just basically made a fan-made Greyhawk fan club, and he had actually kind of this was a lot of his brainchild, and so. uh um, but yeah, I mean, we made those T-shirts. Those T-shirts I made, and Gary even wore them. That's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it's that's a neat moment of just uh having uh having those luminaries, you know, working able you know, to work with those guys. I got to talk to Gary about Greyhawk, and uh, it's just kind of a, a and an interesting, another interesting story about the acquisition. So, you know, both Gary and Dave Arneson had been kind of outcast out of TSR, and. Gary had outcast Dave, and then Gary got outcasted by Lorraine, and uh, um, so one of the things Peter wanted to do is he wanted to heal all the rifts, right, between TSR and whoever. And so through the course of that summer, both Gary and Dave, you know, met up with Peter and I, and and had lunch, and then we we took them into TSR and walked them around and stuff, and got to show them what their little baby had, had, had built over the years. And that was really moving. It was just, uh, I mean, seeing, you know, I mean, tears in their eyes, you know. It was just very, very, very moving. And it was really cool to do that. And I was glad I got to be there for that, like, moment where they got to reconcile with their old company and stuff. And, you know, and of course, ever since then, we've always put by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax into, into our books because, you know, Dave had been removed from the line the liner notes for a long time. So that was a pretty cool moment. So, you know um might you go next slide. So I get to, you know, yeah, you know, there's the T S R Castle <laughs> in the background there. Uh we had that, you know, I don't know if you guys remember know, did any of you guys go to Gencom when there was a TSR Castle? Yeah, so it was a huge thing in the middle of the exhibit hall. And uh there's actually a funny story about the TSR castle because the rest of the exhibitors kind of resented it. Um, it was just big, ostentatious thing, and we were like limited how many booths we could get, how tall we can make something in a booth because they didn't want to have anybody bigger than them, and uh, and they owned the convention. So, um, so one year we all decided all the <laughs> all the uh, and you know that that we were going to. Do a Nerf gun raid on the 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 TSR castle before the exhibit all open, and but we, we we let them know we were coming, so they bought a bunch of Nerf guns. We had a bunch of Nerf guns, and we had literally this huge Nerf gun battle in the middle of the TSR castle <laughs> before between everybody, and uh, lost some steam before the Saturday crowds came in. So that was pretty fun. Uh, actually, actually, they had a little like tower in the middle with a. Uh, microphone and a bunch of us attacked that and, and got on top and yelled, we won! <laughs> through the microphone and stuff. It was pretty fun. I hear Lorraine wasn't very amused though. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got to, you know, uh, got to, you know, be part of the staff there and help run the, uh, you know, run TSR and own Gen Con, which is pretty cool. Alright, next. Alright, so... We'll come back to Star Wars. Um, so we're you know, we're we move along, we bought TSR, we start integrating them, move them out to Seattle, and I'm working on Greyhawk and RPGA, and uh, one day I'm coming in from playing basketball at lunchtime. I used to play basketball at lunch every you know with a bunch of the the, the staff and uh I'm all sweaty and my <laughs> My shorts and stuff. Get them upstairs. Take a shower, and I march down. And there's a bunch of guys in suits coming down, you know. And Peter's in a suit and stuff. I'm like, What's, what the hell's going on here? Well, it turns out it was Hasbro, and they had, they were Hasbro was into to look about buying Wizards. And uh, uh, first, I was pretty against it, um, but uh, uh, Peter Ekison was a smart and at the time, I probably had about. Like eight, somewhere between eight or nine percent of the stock, and I think I was like maybe the fifth largest shareholder. Um, so Peter needed my vote at the uh, shareholder meeting, and so he he came in, and he had a piece of paper, and uh, he wrote down a number on the piece of paper, and slid it over to me and said, "That's how much money you'll get if we sell to Hasbro." I looked at that number and went. It was more money than I ever thought I'd have in my lifetime. And he said, all right, and he handed me a bunch of dice and said, all right, that's in the, in the kitty right now. We can roll the dice, and maybe we can make more, or we can crap out and lose all of that. So do you want to take your money off the table now, or do you want to roll? And I was looking at this dice, I'm looking at that number, and I'm like, I want to take my winnings. And He's like, good girl. <laughs> and so we end up selling. And, then, you know, it was, a, it was a good, it was, I mean, to tell you the truth, we, <laughs> we sold too early. You know, in retrospect, we would have made a lot more money. We literally, we made enough money for Hasbro the first year We they bought us the, to pay back what they bought us for. Yeah, because Pokemon came out. It was huge. And, uh, but you know, I kind of rolled the dice. But, you know, we didn't. Took the money off. Um, decision made. But one of the cool things that happened out of that is, like, right off the bat, I, I it's about the same time this, we get bought by Hasbro, I hear that West End Games is going out of business. And I knew that meant that the Star Wars license is now up for grabs. And so I'm like, well, we have new corporate overlords that have this connection to Lucasfilm. And so I tell Peter, like, call Alan Hassenfeld up and tell him we need the Star Wars license. And so Alan Hassenfeld calls up Lucasfilm and says, we're your master toy licensor. We would like the Star Wars license for uh, for role-playing games and trading card games. It turns out that the Cypher's license was up, too. So in <laughs> so at this film. It turns out that the Cypher had already been making a move to get the role-playing game license, and actually was, had flown to San Francisco and had been driving up and was just about to get into the gates of Skywalker Ranch to negotiate this deal. And they get to the gates, and they're told, sorry, turn around, you need to go back home. <laughs> As uh, Hasbro has basically said, they want this thing. So what comes around goes around, um, and we are going there and negotiating a deal to get the Star Wars rights for trading card games and role playing games. This is the launch event for the Star Wars role playing game that we had at uh, up in Seattle. Peter Mayhew, Mr. Chewbacca, just recently passed, and that's uh little Anakin Skywalker from Episode One. Uh, Jake Lloyd. Um, and then Drew Struzan, who's the did the cover for the role-playing game, was was the guy that did all the the the, the Star Wars posters that you would see. He still does them. <laughs> He's doing Episode Nine or whatever. And, uh, and that's me giving a speech to the media and stuff like that. Um, but we had a big big event there. We had a bunch of local. I have a bunch of. I'm a huge Star Wars collector too. So uh, and we, a bunch of us have. Props from the movies, and so we had like a big exhibit of props and stuff. It was pretty impressive. Um, so yeah, so we start doing Star Wars, and everything's uh, uh, going hunky dory, and I'm having a time of my life doing Star Wars stuff. And we actually were running the Star Wars Fan Club and publishing Star Wars Insider magazine. And well, actually, that's not quite yet. I to head too far. So one of the things I did when we were when I was first. Um, looking at uh, getting acquired by Hasbro as I went and read a bunch of books about what Hasbro does when Hasbro buys companies. And it turns out they tend to pretty quickly dismantle a lot of things, get rid of things, sell things off, get rid of staff. Well, one of the things they did is after and right at the end of 2000, yeah, right at the end of 2000, Peter Atkinson and I got basically canned out of... Uh, out of Wizards. And uh don't be too sad because I, you know, I guess I made a lot of money. I took my winnings off the table. Um so I took a year off. But I I I'd known that they were probably gonna get rid of parts of the company. So I, I put my feelers out to various people and said, you know, if they ever decide to get rid of this part of the company, give me a, a you know a shout out. I might be interested in, you know, buying it and stuff like that. And so lo and behold at the end of two thousand and one I get a call from Mr. Johnny Wilson, who was running the periodicals department, between Dragon Magazine, Dungeon Magazine, and Star Wars Insider Magazine. And next slide, please. So he pitches to me about, you know, t- let's let's take this out and make a new company. And so, you know, I do some spreadsheet work and look at the business. I'm like, this looks pretty good. This be a pretty nice little business, and. Like what are we? Gonna, all right, let's do this business. What are we gonna call it? I had no ideas for the companies. He's like, let's call it Paizo. Um, What's Paizo? He's like, oh, it's it's a Greek word means to play, to dance, to sing. And I'm like, ah, right, good enough. I Google and find out. Find out. Yeah, you know, no one's trademarked it, so all right, we're good. Um, and uh, so we call. It. We started a company, Paizo Publishing LLC, in 2002. And uh, um, next slide, please. Yeah there I am Gen con two thousand two uh, at the uh, Wizard of the coast booth uh, they let us have this little bit of our booth where we can like uh you know show off that we now are proud owners of Dragon Dungeon, polyhedron Star Wars insider and we were selling subscriptions to the magazines there um, and uh Pisa was born and uh, so uh next slide so here we are, like probably next year or year after. Um, and uh, so we're doing Dragon and Dungeon. And uh, well, actually, well, let's, let's talk a little bit. Yeah, so we're doing Dragon and Dungeon Magazine. Again, something I've been, I was a subscriber to Dragon from issue like 50 onwards. And I was, this is a, 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 a historical fact, I was the first subscriber to Dungeon Magazine. I bought it at Dragon at Gen Con the year that they first announced it and I remember going to the booth and Kim Mohan said you're the first subscriber and he wrote it in my first copy he wrote first subscriber and signed it so I have proof and he was the editor-in-chief of uh, Dungeon at the time and uh, so uh, yeah so we're doing Dragon and Dungeon um, and uh, next slide and also Star Wars Insider and the fan club. So Star Wars Insider had become the fan club had become part of this whole thing. Um, when so it, it originally was done by a company in uh, Denver, Colorado, and they they held that license for like 18 years or something like that—a long time. Dan Matson, good guy, and uh, but they had gone on some hard times, and, uh, and then we ended up getting it. So uh, being the big you know, Star Wars geek that I am, it was like I got to be president of the Star Wars fan club, which was pretty neat. I uh, Got to go around. Yeah, this is at Disney World, I think. Uh, got to do a big thing with uh, Star Tours, and 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 we had a big. We had uh, Boba Fett and Chewbacca signing autographs, and uh, people would, you know, we'd do these big fan events. It was great. Um then also next slide, I got to go on the set for filming of Star Wars Episode Three. So this is, this is. Uh, basically all the international uh fan club people and some uh, Lucasfilm people and then I'm back there in the middle <laughs> you could barely see me back there sunglasses on. Um but that was a blast to be able to actually see a Star Wars film being made. Um and then it all kind of uh came tumbling down in 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 pieces. Uh so uh Johnny Wilson, the guy I started the company with, uh, ended up getting in a fight with my husband. And he was like, it's either him or me. And I'm like, well, I already made a life commitment to that guy, so I guess it's him. <laughs> and so we ended up buying Johnny out of the company. And so this, my husband and I own it. And, but there was a clause in our contract with Lucasfilm that said, it was a key man clause that said, if we, if Johnny ever left the company, they could take the license back and... I had been telling them for a couple of years they're idiots to to license it on anyways, is they should be doing the fan club themselves It's like, their customers, and they should try to be getting close to them. And, and I'd also been talking about e-commerce and how they should be doing Star Wars e-commerce and stuff, so they decided to take that plunge. They started doing StarWarsShop.com, and they brought the uh, fan club in-house, um, which means we didn't have it. So we were... um. It was about 60, maybe two thirds of my revenue was Star Wars related. So that was a lot of revenue to lose. They gave me, you know, like a year or something. I know ahead of time. So next slide. So we decided to we sat down and said, well, what do we do well? And and in Dragon and Dungeon or Dungeon magazine, magazine in specific, the thing we had really done well was the adventure paths. We did, you know, three of them. Before this, we had done Shackled City, Savage Tide, and Age of Worms. And uh, um, they were just the best. People love those. And um, we actually did a Shackled City hardcover book at 1.2 um, that sold really, really well. And so we're like, well, let's. Um, actually, I think this is even further on. All right. So that's right. So. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, a little behind myself, actually. Well, the slides ahead of myself. Um, so that's right. So we lose Star Wars, so we we kind of doubled down on Dragon and Dungeon, and we start doing modules and stuff. We did game mastery modules, uh, and uh, we started doing map packs and flip mats and some of those kind of things just to kind of try to fill in the revenue that we were losing, and we did a pretty decent job of that. We would also tried to launch a couple other magazines one called Undefeated, it was uh, c- uh, competitive gaming, and then one that was uh, Amazing Stories, one of the oldest magazines in the world, and we kind of did a new look on it with like looking at geek culture, and I think we're just a little early maybe. Um, but magazines are a really tough business, and if you're ever interested in finding how tough they are, go look at one of my... I did blog, Auntie Lisa's story blogs on paisa.com about the... Three-legged stool model of my magazines and how it's the stupidest thing in the world and how it's an impossible to make money with that thing and it was impossible to make money and we were we were we were dying quickly, but we were, we'd figured it out and we were kind of limping along and and we had gotten Dragon and Dungeon up pretty well and we were doing these hardcovers and stuff and then Wizards of the Coast let us know they weren't going to renew the license because they had a new edition coming out. And they wanted to bring Dragon and Dungeon to a totally digital environment, and they were going to sell subscriptions to it and stuff like that. And so now the other <laughs> rest of my you know revenue is going away, except now we've done these modules and stuff. So that's when we sat down and said, well, what do we do really well? We make adventures. We know how to do the Adventure Paths. And so in or 2007, we launched the Pathfinder Adventure Path line uh, with Rise of the Rune Lords. Wayne Reynolds with his beautiful art, including the alternative cover, um, and uh, lo and behold, it did really well. <laughs> we, I, we we sold a lot of copies of the of the adventure pass, and uh and all of a we have a whole new business going on. And so we start, you know, we start doing campaign setting. We did, you know launched the Galarian campaign setting, and we did you know, more modules and. And I'm like we're gonna have a pretty nice little business here and stuff like that, just making stuff for, you know, three point five and oh yeah, there's that new edition. So next slide. So, you know, it, it left us in a bit of a conundrum. We were we were planning to, we wanted really badly to just make start making stuff for fourth edition, and Wizards of the Coast kept telling us, well, you know, you guys don't worry, you're you're, you're like family. We'll let you in. Early, you'll get to see the, the game, help playtest, involved with it. You'll be the first people that has to see the game and they're like, Okay, great, we're all, we're all in, you know. And then they we just never they never play tested it with us, never showed it to us. We never got to see it. And meanwhile everybody else is playtesting it and they're and we're hearing from some of the people playtesting, we're not liking this game. 4th having is not for us and 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 and, and, and yet we never played it, and so it was like what are we gonna do? Where do we go? And so we, you know, we started. Jason Bowman had started playing around with a set of rules of what he could, what he would do if he was making a game out of three point five, and he called it Mon Mothma. I <laughs> think he might have done that because Mon Mothma is a character in Star Wars, um, and uh, this was this was his uh, early draft um, of it. Let's have this as. And uh, so, you know, we're debating ins- internally. I think we did some stuff on the forums, you know, to you know, should we stay or should we go? And people were debating both ways. And so, finally, Wizards. Or so this is about like half a year before the before the new edition came out. We they uh, uh, had a kind of open play at. A winter the winter fantasy game uh, convention they ran at the time in Lake Geneva. No, 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 it wasn't Lake Geneva, it was in Milwaukee. And uh um so Jason goes and plays, comes back and says it's really it's not for us. It's not the game we want. And so we look at each other and kinda of said, All right, I guess we're making a role playing game. So really quickly we uh we, we figured we had to get this announced sooner than later, and so we uh um end up uh taking Jason's Mon Mothmon and and, and we we ended up doing an alpha play test using mostly those rules. Jason had to frantically write a bunch of stuff he hadn't written, and we you know announced that in like I think it was like February, somewhere in the end of February of that year. This is like 08, and then uh. Gen Con in 08, we launched the beta playtest. Um, and uh, and then, next slide, 2009, there's the first print run of Pathfinder role-playing game in our current offices. And so we were just moving into these new offices too. And it doesn't look like that much, but the biggest run I've ever done like at Paizo. And Pathfinder role-playing game comes out, and that's uh, Liz Quartz and Adam Daigle. With copy, and uh, we're off to the races. And lo and behold, you know, this little Pathfinder role playing game did pretty well. Um, hit the right time, uh, and it takes off. and We've been riding that raid wave kind of ever since. Next slide. So, uh, a, a, few, a year or so after that, um, so Mike Selinker of Lone Shark Games is like a Really good friend of mine. I've known him since he was a high school punk playing uh, RPG events in in Wisconsin back in the early '80s. Uh, we used to play together all the time uh, in RPG events, and uh, you know, when he started doing game design, we we kept close. He moved; he was in Seattle, I was in Seattle now, and he so he comes and uh, had this idea for doing a card game that replicates a role playing game, which he called an adventure card game. And we play tested what he had and loved it, and so. So in 2013, we we launched the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, the Rise of the Rune Lord set, and it did incredibly well. Uh, I think at one point, it actually was on Board Game Geek as the number one game, uh, which was I think at the time there was some game that had been on there for like 10 years or something like that. So I think we knocked off some. I can't remember which game it was, but it was something had been up there for like an ever, forever and ever. And uh, so that that happened. Next slide. Oh yeah, in that same year, I got voted into the Hall of Fame, which I can remember when I was young. I I used to go to these award ceremonies and see all my heroes getting into the Hall of Fame, and figuring you know I I figured there'd never be a day where I would get in there, and, and lo and behold, that happened that year, which was a pretty cool thing. Um, next. Oh, and so then. This thing called Pathfinder Online. So this is actually something that I have personally become pretty involved with. Um, I never thought I'd get into playing video or doing video games. I've always been a tabletop gamer, and but a friend of mine uh, uh, just left uh, one of the MMOs. Has the Eve Online, and uh, he called me up and said, "How would you like to do a Pathfinder MMO?" And I'm like, "Well." don't know how to do MMOs, and he goes, "Well, I know how to do MMOs. Don't worry, we'll take care of it." So he, he started a company called Goblin Works, and uh, and uh, we gave him a license, and uh, um, and they you know, started working on a, on an MMO, and it's turned out to be one of the things that I've, I, I I just can't believe how into it I am, and so I play pretty much every day, <laughs> and it's we're still making it. It's, it's gone through some ups and downs. The Goblin Works went out of business. Paiza took it over. I got a very small staff working on it. But uh that first screenshot was like when it first got started, it was like the first time we were able to log into the game, was that first screenshot. And then I took that other screenshot last year and it's kind of the same same view and you can see it's come kinda of come a long ways. We've actually done done some uh role playing books. The Emerald Spire takes place in this area, which was a hardcover dungeon we did. And we also did the Thornkeep book that that's the city of Thornkeep there that you're looking. i looking down at. So, anyway, it's kind of this fun thing we're still working on slowly but surely. And uh, you can actually try it out for free now. We have put in free trials. Let's go to PathfinderOnline.com if you're interested in taking a look. Next, 2017 Starfinder. Um, so Starfinder has an interesting legacy of how it got started. Um, so what kind of normally happens is Eric Mona and his guys sit down and come up with ideas of what they want to do, and they pitch it to, to me and the executive team. And here's what we want to do. Like right now, they're going to be pitching 2021 probably at the end of the year. And uh, so he comes in to me, and he's like, all right, boss. Um, I could do next year, I can, you know, in 2017, I could do best 6 or I could do a new role-playing game called Starfinder, and and he goes, and I'm like, new role-playing game, and I'm like, and he goes, don't don't, don't worry about it. Here's what I have in mind, and he kind of pitched the idea of this whole taking the world of Glarian into the future and stuff like that, and and he said, look, it will still sell better than Bestiary Six. Right, Hi, true, and so you know, we we, I said, but you know. I'm not just, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We have to do it with Adventure Pass. We have to do it with Flip Mats. We have to do all the, uh, you know, releases and stuff, right? You know, and so we commit to doing Starfinder, and it launches in 2017, and, well, again, it's been around. <laughs> it's doing this nicely now, and so, and it added to the, you know, having two role-playing games was great. Um allowed us to, you know, explore a whole new territory and the, uh, yeah, pretty happy with that one. Well, let's see. Next. Oh yeah, that same year was Gen Con number fifty. Pretty cool. Uh I don't know, You guys were you are all here for that? Yeah. So on the right there is a panel, a bunch of people, uh early days of Wizards of the Coast, uh Kathleen Atkinson's next to me, Beverly Marshall Saline, and Carol Monahan. We were all talking about the early days of Wizards of the Coast and Being women in the industry at the time when a lot of guys were in charge. And the left is a picture of a lot of the old guard uh, in front of the Horticultural Hall uh, museum thing they put together. And it's like everybody, there's so many people in there that I, you know, idolized growing up. And I think I was now peers with them. And 50th anniversary was pretty cool. Next. Oh, yeah, and this thing, Pathfinder 2.0. So uh, um, every every role playing game's got its its life cycle, and it's uh, um, I've done a number of them now through my many years in this industry, and uh, um, we kind of knew a few years back that Pathfinder was kind of getting, it, you know, it's kind of getting we're, we're we're starting to run out of ideas for things to do, and you know, and it's just it felt like it was kind of like. We had we had done what we we're going to do with it, and uh, so we we you know we started you know design on doing a new edition, um, get Jason, even and Logan and Mark Seifter started working on it and and, and uh, just you know it, I'm surprised we were able to go as long as we did. I mean, ten years is a long time between editions, um, but we learned so much from you know. All those years of making uh, Pathfinder, and uh, we knew we wanted to to use that experience and all the experience of the gamers who had been playing to like help us take it to the next, you know, the next generation, and uh, try to make a game that still pa- played like Pathfinder, but maybe the, some of the things that didn't work as well would now work better, like high level play and stuff like that. So we've been working on the, our butts off on this thing for a long time, and. Uh, announced the last year, I had a huge playtest and lots of amazing feedback, and I think the guys did a great job of really integrating the feedback from all the players, and 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 you know, coming out the game that I I'm really excited and proud of. You know, it's the not my first, it probably may not be my last, we'll see, but it's definitely one I'm very very proud of, and, and here it is today. So next slide, and that's the end of. Uh, uh, kind of my readers digest thing that's me getting interviewed at a I'm a, a big fan of the uh women's basketball and Seattle Storm is our team in Seattle and, and in 2004 I ended up uh they gave a randomly gave a uh, championship ring to uh uh one of the fans for as as being a member of the team and I won it so I got I had that whole game that they gave the rings out. I got followed around by a camera crew. <laughs> it just happens to be a picture of when the guy's interviewing me during between the breaks and halftime or whatever it was. Um, so it's kind of fun. Anyway, so we have about, about 20 minutes left or something like that. I can take questions, can tell more stories, whatever. Go ahead. Oh, there you go. Wow, it's like it was like real.
0: <laughs>
1: <clears throat> so it was first edition, and you know, if you know first edition, not a lot of rules, and so are gonna make it was a lot of you know, DM fiat and stuff like that. So you can kind of move things along pretty you know, pretty quickly because basically you got to do one thing and everyone to the next thing, right? The one thing that I I, I I I it still baffles me that we did this, but we rolled initiative every round. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so sixteen people trying to figure out who's got who's going next. And there was no delays. It was just like you get on the list and all right we roll initiative again. Um can't believe, and I remember when they first in third edition they were like, "We're gonna do it so that you just you know roll once for a combat." And I'm like, "That's just blasphemy! You roll every <laughs> round." <laughs> no, it's like I can't imagine how we did that. Um I think a lot of it was just we did a lot of role playing, and uh it was you know, I mean we had miniatures, we had a I had a battle mat and miniatures and stuff too, uh, but it was it was too hard. I mean I I didn't. That game sucked. I mean, it really wasn't very good. It took forever to get through combats, and no one could really, you know, no one had a time to shine and stuff. I mean, I regularly had maybe eight, and that, eight, nine, you, you know. And I think the reason it worked is because the the players were really good at playing role-playing with each other. Like, if I was working with somebody else, they'd be role-playing with each other. I mean, there was a number of nights where they just they took off, they took over the game, and just role played, and uh, I didn't have to do anything except sit back and just smile and take notes. I mean, I, I'll tell you a funny story, but this is one of my my great stories of uh, being a GM and having a great game group. Um, one of the uh, players, we were in doing we Bone Hill, I think it was, and he had a, a mage, and one night he he went invisible and he snuck over to this other player. Who had another wizard and he he he, he, he the wizard was sleeping, he snuck out his scroll tube, but he knew he'd got a scroll tube that day, and he basically stole the scroll tube, and then when they were back in town, he inscribed one of the spells in the, the scroll that he knew the guy had had into his spell book and then put the scroll back and put it back in the guy's backpack. And I made a note of it, you know, and like do a jam. And like two years later, we're in like vaults of the drow. And there was some really tense moment where they were fighting a bunch of the drow. The guy goes, holy shit, I got Kona Cold. Hang on, I got that on a scroll. I know I have it. It's right here on my sheet. So he goes, he goes, I, I pull out the scroll and I read Kona Cold. And I say, you pull out the scroll and where Kona Cold is is an empty spot. <clears throat> and he goes, bullshit, man. Bullshit. It says right here I have it. I said, said you think you had it, but it seems to be gone for some reason. They go, oh, that's just crap, man. I can't believe you're screwing us like this. And, and everybody, including the guy who stole it, were like, oh, man, horrible DM, you know, and stuff. And they were totally giving me crap about it, the fact that I'm making this up because I didn't want them to beat the, the the drow and stuff like that. And I'm like, sorry. It's just, there's a reason for it. I can't tell you. Why can't you tell me? I can't tell you. It's just gone, you know. And and so it was just like, oh, it's, I love that one because it's just like, it's like that kind of thing. I mean, that was kind of game we had. It's just like, there was this, Wonderful richness to it, and so I think that allowed the game to be to be played because not everybody was dependent on me; they were doing stuff for themselves too, other players and stuff. I else? Come on, go for it. Still, uh, do you still uh, DM at all? I do, um, though I haven't. I, i'm so we took a break we took a break i was jamming uh jamming sorry jamming well, he's a trademark um i was <laughs> uh i was jamming uh starfinder we were we were we we had a blast at that too and uh we are doing the the first adventure path from starfinder and actually it was really kind of fun we had i had decided that uh that uh uh, the, the 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 local uh, Absalom station TV network had just had they made it into like a uh, um, uh, a reality show they wanted to have a reality show fo- you know, focused on the players so they all these cameras are going around you know like following everybody with these little drone cameras and stuff and every so often the players were really annoyed at them they go like they just say when I'm doing my backswing, I make sure I hit one of those cameras and knock it out and stuff. And they were having a blast and I'd have them do like, you know, diary room sessions. So so so-and-so is not pulling their weight in the game. And it was really fun. It was actually a blast to kind of like, you know, you know, Play with that, well, you can't really do that in a fantasy game, but it's not a science fiction game. You know, you figured everybody was kind of you know curious. These are the the, the heroes, you know, of Absalom Station, so they wanted to know what was going on and what was happening out there. And so uh, the Pathfinder Society wanted the publicity, and so our Starfinder Society wanted the publicity. So, anyways, we were playing that, but then uh, we started. Then we just did the the, the playtest for second edition. We playtested a bunch of those things, and you know, wanted to give our input into the game. And uh and then I've been playing the adventure card game now while I'm waiting for second edition to launch, which well, it just happened. Um but I still need to digest those rules, the hefty, hefty rules. You know, and, and I I've read the playtest rules, so I have an idea what's in there. But I wanna make sure I got a bunch of uh I mean, one of the guys in my game group was one of the guys that was in my college game group. One of the guys, Scaf Elias, is one of the third edition designers, and so I got a bunch. And both of those guys are huge rules lawyers, and so they know every rule, and they'll they'll call me on every mistake I make, and I have to know I have to have my game down. So we're gonna I'm gonna spend probably the next three or four months, you know, kind of just digesting the rules. We'll play some adventure card game, and then we'll launch a second edition campaign soon. But that that group's been playing together with me for a long time, probably since sometime in the '90s. 95 or so yeah. you have something from the internet yes we have a question from twitch <clears throat> do you have any
0: regrets about having to leave Watsy? or do you feel like it was just fate
1: that's a really interesting question I mean obviously at the time I was pretty I, you know I was I was pretty devastated not as devastated as losing at leaving White Wolf was White Wolf I thought really was my life I thought I was going to be there forever and having to leave there was I mean it mean, it was dark times and thankfully uh it turned out okay. We're coming up to Seattle and, and doing uh Wizards of the Coast. Um but yeah, you know, there's you know, it was definitely I mean I you know, I, I don't have any any regrets, no, but there were things I wanted to do. I was really excited with some of the Star Wars stuff and I you know, had a couple of some, some big ideas of some things I wanted to do that I thought Hasbro could pull off. I never got to do. Be someday, Paizo can pull them off. We'll see. We're not quite there where I, I need them to be. We're not quite that size yet. But um, you know, it's it is it is interesting how every time fate has kind of thrown something in my face. Um, if you, you know, we persevered and overcame and went on to bigger and better things. And uh, I think it's kind of a life lesson that I've taken away from uh, my career is that. Um, I think a lot of people give up in the face of adversity, and uh when the going gets tough, they they give up. And you know, I'm not a quitter. I'm I, I, I'm probably one of the more stubborn people you ever meet. And uh you know, and and I think those tough times make you stronger. And uh I think it makes stronger companies, stronger products, ideas, whatever. Innovation comes out of hard times, a lot of times. And uh, and I think. Uh, you know, if I if I was to, you know one piece of advice to people, it's like don't give up on your dreams, even if they get hard, you know. Something that can really carry you forward. So yeah. Anything else? Bueller? Another thing from Twitch? We'll give you another Twitch question. All right. Do you have any future plans for expanding licensing of Pathfinder PC games being developed? Well, yes we do. Pathfinder PC games, I mean so we had our first Pathfinder PC game come out um, last year with Kingmaker from Owlcat Games. Um, uh, it's done really phenomenally well. Um, they're working on a sequel. Can't tell you what it is. I'd have to get shot. Uh, but it's gonna be pretty cool. And we're always, you know, in the process. I mean, we're ha- you know, always interested in talking to other people about doing other games, and we get approached rather regularly, and we you know, try to vet to try to find. Uh, Companies that we think will do a, a good job and have a, and, and, and make games that we'll be proud of, and that's harder than it sounds. You know, it's it's it's, uh, it's definitely uh, uh, there, you know there's a lot of people that want to do games and stuff. There are some pretty cool things that are going to be coming out. That I can't talk about unfortunately, but just keep your eyes peeled on <laughs> plaza.com and our Facebook and Twitch channel and things like that. I'm sure, we'll have more things to say in the future. All right, speaking of the PC games, are there any plans on, like, say, taking Kingmaker and like porting it to consoles? Like, I'd love to play that on the Switch. There is, there are, um, yeah, they're on the. From My understanding, <laughs> and I'll say, you know, I'm like twice removed on this information, but I, my understanding is that they're just going to be coming out in console. I don't know when, maybe end of the year or Christmas. Um, I don't have an exact date, but I know that they've signed deals to do. Um, I know. I'm pretty sure. I know they did an Xbox deal. I um, don't know about the other ones, but I'm sure they're gonna do a bunch of them. But yes, console will be coming on sometime. All right, we have one more from Twitch. What was your favorite ad lib or improv that you've pulled off while GMing? Oh wow! Oh, boy oh boy oh boy! That's a tough question. Mainly because I'm old and I forget these things. And if I have them, uh, oh, oh, oh. let's go with. Which, what's one of them that comes to your head? I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, uh, all right, all right, all right, all right. I right, got it. I got it. I got it. Sorry. Right, so here's uh, so, um, go back to the temple of elemental evil. You know, we're we're running this huge epic campaign, and we're getting pretty, um, pretty low down in in the in the temple, and. The guy who's playing the Paladin decides he wants to get his warhorse. He's got to level. We can get his Paladin's horse, and you know, according to the rules, he has to go out and and do this uh, big quest and stuff like that. So, you know, he gets he gets a uh, um, you know, vision from his god about where he's got to go, and so they all trump out of the elemental evil and go off on this multi-month quest to get the Paladin's warhorse. And I was thinking to myself. Well these guys aren't gonna sit still. They're gonna know that someone's been up there killing all these guys in the dungeon and stuff. And so I set the and when they come back from this Paladins quest, there's like a freaking armed encampment around the place and, and it actually we ended up uh <laughs> we ended up play doing the whole thing as a as a battle system battle where it was like with miniatures, like a miniatures war game is how we ended up ended up ending Temple of Evil. and they were getting creamed in the middle of this battle and one of the players uh asked their god for a a, a miracle or wish and i used to say you'd have to you'd have to roll double lots, you know to get it and they rolled double lots, and they'd been pretty pious for their god and so you know so what you know what do you wish you know they paused, god paused the battle and they had this little conversation and then the guy says you know um uh I want you to get us out of here. So I had the entire army get teleported across the continent to this safe spot, and it was like, and it was like, and then the temple won because they were able to end a no one the other way. But it was kind of fun, and we did that. Was a good one, and oh man, the other one was fun. Oh, there was a really good one. With the uh, so I always love to have uh, little like drawbacks to powerful items. You know, and so I had this this the this, this same paladin later on in the campaign. Uh, got this holy avenger sword, and this holy avenger sword had a very high ego. It was a speaking sword and stuff, and it actually ended up uh, like melding with his personality, and the two personalities kind of became one. And but I decided that it had its drawback was its old owner is a death knight, and this death knight. Hates that th- he's been trying to like lose the sword into the you know, throw it into things, you know, the ocean or throw it into a dungeon or something to try to get rid of it. And and so he knows this death knight knows the sword's now in someone else's hands. And so he just he would just march on his 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 nightmare to wherever the the players were. And when he first showed up, he like walked in and like and then like you know, basically did finger of death where and killed the paladin. Like and and then but then the paladin, was, long story but the paladin had this, actually had an undead warhorse, <laughs> because it had died at one point. But I got He asked for a miracle from his god. And he got a, he got it raised. But it was still undead. But it wasn't evil undead. And it was a, this kind of weird thing. It could go to the ethereal plane, and uh, so the horse actually ends up saving him. And like take flies off to the ethereal plane. The death knight can only go to the astral plane, so he couldn't do it. He got mad. But then he started coming in like, okay, fine. If You guys want to fight me? I'm going to send demons into town, and they're going to go kill people. So you better go fight those demons and stuff if you're going to, you know, and I want to do this one-on-one with the the, the paladin. And he kept, like, coming coming in every time in, like, the, you know, for, like, years he would just show up in the middle of an adventure, right? Just challenge the the paladin. I can't, he, he, he got to the point where, like, I just want to get rid of this sword because it's just such a pain in the ass. And it was so much fun, you know? It was just like, okay, that's that's fun. And that was kind of all ad-libbed, you know? It's just like a, a fun thing to do to kind of really add some drama to, you know, owning a Holy Avengers sword, which should just be a really nothing but good. But I think we're on the done side of this then. Thank you so much for coming, and... Uh,
0: And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to nodirectionpodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you would like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at patreon.com slash nodirection, or click on the Patreon link at nodirectionpodcast.com.